We're going to get into the meat of Revelation. Okay, We're going to be in Revelation chapter 6, starting tonight. And uh, what's happening here, let's remind ourselves that we've just been in the throne room of God. And that throne room of God, we've witnessed worship. Now, if you've been here the last two weeks, and on Sunday, we've talked about Revelation 4 and 5, Latin. Two Wednesdays ago, last Wednesday, and Sunday. So we ought to be pretty good where we are, okay? That's where we are. We're in the throne room of God. Worship is taking place. Um, it, it's one of those places. Come on, Miss Ann. <laughs> we, uh, so we're there. We're in the midst of the worship. And what is happening is, what is happening in heaven is about to be bring relevance to things that are going on on earth. So what's happening in heaven is about to spill onto earth, okay, in John's vision. What is also happening is, you remember last week the vision, this is important to remember, that God is sitting on the throne and He's holding what in His right hand? A scroll. scroll, right? And there are how many seals on the scroll? Seven, right? And we're going to have the seven seals open. This is like, it's almost like um, one of those... Uh, Anybody had to open a kid's toy lately? Yeah. yeah. And you have to, the things you unwind, and the kid is in there wanting to play with it, and you're three hours into taking apart the Barbie Jeep, all right? Or whatever the little thing is. I mean, it's this small, you know? Well, it's almost, it's not like that, really. But each one, each seal being broken brings us closer to the scroll being unrolled and the rest of history being revealed. Okay, And so what we have in the seals is kind of the beginning of God preparing the earth for the unraveling of the scroll. Okay, Now what we're also going to see is um, something called telescoping. Okay, And so we have um, seal 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and then we have seal 7. Okay? Tonight we're just going to cover the first four, but when we get to seven, it's almost like it's anticlimactic. Well, most scholars believe what is happening is seal seven is really the beginning of the next phase. And so seal seven is actually the unveiling of the trumpets. And once you get to the seventh trumpet, the seventh trumpet is the unveiling of the bowls. Okay? So the seventh seal are the trumpets, the seventh trumpet are the bowls, so the bowls are the trumpets are the seventh seal. Amen. Okay? You got all that? Good, because we're going. Um, so just to understand, these aren't like multi, this isn't necessarily uh, a structured one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, we end, one, two, three, they're all kind of running together and gradually intensifying. Okay? Let me ask you a question. Where were you on September the 11th, 2001? What were you doing? Randy, what were you doing? I was at home with Callie doing homeschooling, and she didn't get a lot of schooling that day. Yeah, how old was Callie then? First grade. First grade, okay. Anybody else? I'm sorry, kindergarten. Kindergarten. I was teaching in a classroom at Volunteer State. So you had college kids in the classroom, and you all began to get the news, okay? Wayne? I was casing the military post office and it all hit us like a ton of brick. We all stopped, went to the break room, and put on the TV. Yeah. Um, anybody else? I was in the grocery store. Grocery store? I was at home and I turned the TV on just as the, the second one hit. Yeah. I watched it when it first hit and 
I was uh, I was underneath downtown Ripley, Tennessee. Uh, in Ripley, they have on the square an old style barber. You go down the steps into the basement on downtown, have the pole outside, and he he still shaved with a straight razor. Shaved your face with a straight razor. For nine dollars, you got a haircut and shave. <laughs> Three dollar shave, six dollar haircut. So that's where I got my haircut. Now you only got one kind of haircut. You didn't get to choose what you wanted. You got it was either you got the Carmack or the Hayes because that's who was cut, Carmack or Hayes, whatever they want to give you that day. But I was sitting in the barber chair when the second plane hit. They had a TV, uh, just a small TV, sitting over in the corner. Uh, and we were watching that. Let me ask you a question. Let's say that on September the 10th, you received a 100% assured tip of what was going to happen on September the 11th. 19 terrorists, four planes, two towers, the Pentagon, and a field in Pennsylvania. Let's say on September the 10th, you found out what was going to happen. And let's say for a minute you've got a child or a dad or a brother or a sister or an uncle or an aunt getting on a plane that day. Or you know somebody that you went to high school with that works in New York City right across from the World Trade Center. Now if you have the information on September the 10th, what are you going to do? You don't try to tell them, right? You don't go to work today. Don't get on, whatever you do. Don't get on that plane. Don't get. Don't go. It's not that important. If I'm wrong, it's not that important. Well, Revelation six and following tells us of events that are going to happen that are worse than September the eleventh. Time after time, it tells us about things that will make September the eleventh seem small. And yet, we have been given this knowledge now. The Book of Revelation has several points. And we've talked about worship. And we can talk about, and we have talked about the fact that it is comfort for a persecuted church. And we will get there. In fact, very soon we'll get there to where God is showing protection for His persecuted church. And some things like that. But one of the other things it ought to be, it ought to be a wake-up call to those of us who know people who are not yet followers of Jesus Christ. That this is coming. Someday. And in some ways we pray sooner rather than later. Because I'm ready. And in some ways we pray later rather than sooner. Because I know people who aren't. And so today as we begin to look at this. We need to be aware of what's coming. So that it can influence us. And how we interact with children and neighbors and grandkids. You realize I saw a statistic, and I, um, there may be one or two of us in this category in this room. I'm not. But the most unreached people group in the world today, you know what they are? 10 year old to 30 year olds. 10 year old to 30 year olds. We've got a generation that, even compared to previous generations, that the scary thing is. All the statistics from years ago was if you didn't reach someone by the time they were 18, you didn't reach them. Well, we're going to get a chance to prove that wrong because we're going to have a lot of people that are 20, 25, 30, 35 that are lost. 
But 10 to 30, there's been an article written within the last week. You may have heard of the 1040 window. The 1040 window is the 10 to 40 along the equator. And that's where most of the unreached people groups in the world are. But the 1030 window is being talked about. That it is, it is one of the largest generations in the history of the world. And they are mostly lost. And so as we read this, we read it not just as passes observers or, wow, I wonder what that means. We read it with the knowledge that this is the future. Now, in Scripture, we see people that God gives them warning. Who in Scripture gets a warning from God that something's about to happen? And they, they take and do what God asks them to do and they save themselves. You think of anybody? Noah. Noah, right? Noah is told it's going to rain. And if you will build an ark, you'll be saved. Who else? Jonah saves Nineveh. Jonah finally concedes that he'll go talk to him, and Nineveh repents. The king repents. Okay? Yeah, Lot, Lot gets out. His wife doesn't quite make it. If you're reading the chronological Bible or when you're reading through the Bible, you're, you're in that area. Okay? What about Moses? Passover, right? Um. And we live in a world where we, see, we can see other examples in Scripture, even examples of people who read God's Word. Ezra, who preached God's Word over and over again. Josiah, who found God's Word and they heeded the Word of the Lord. And so we are at a point when we just have to ask the question, what does Scripture say and how do we interact with it? Tonight we're going to look at Revelation 6. The scene arrives with the four horsemen of the apocalypse. The fury and thunder of their hoofbeats have been anticipated for centuries. The harbingers of deception and destruction, deprivation and death, aren't those good D words there, have been coming for a long time. And they haven't quite come fully yet. But our world is fascinated with them. There were four guys that were apparently pretty good football players in the 1920s. Right? Anybody know who they played for? Notre Dame. Played for Newt Rockman. Anybody know what their names were? Four the Four Horsemen of Notre Dame. Anybody know their their actual names? I do because I looked it up and wrote it down. All right. <laughs> Harry Stoldrier, Don Miller, Jim Crowley, and Elmer Layden. Y'all know well Elmer, right? There was a stamp with them on it in 1998. It had that famous picture of them on the dark horses, and they were the Four Horsemen. All right. When I grew up, um, some of you. Uh, may think less of me because of this, but that's okay. When I grew up, I was big time into wrestling. Not not wrestling. Wrestling. Alright? And there were two sets of wrestling that we watched in Weston. So we had Memphis. There's a guy named Jerry the King Lawler. Bill, Superstar Dundee. Jimmy, uh, handsome Jimmy Valiant. Austin Idol. Fabulous ones. Uh, I, I used to, we, my brother and I used to make fake belts like we were the fabulous ones and march down. I lived in a rough and tough neighborhood. We built a wrestling ring. We didn't know it was fake, so we wrestled for real. Tojo Yamamoto, there you go. Moondogs, Rex and Spot. Turned the corner in Walmart one day and Moondog Rex was there signing autographs in Dyersburg, Tennessee. He lived in Newburn, so he came to the big town. Um, and then there was Atlanta. And Atlanta had a guy named Dusty Rhodes... Uh, had a Nikita Koloff, and they had four guys: Ric Flair, Ole and Arn Anderson, and Tully Blanchard. And they called themselves the Four Horsemen. 
Now, I found out today how they got that name. I know you all know, so you don't have to act like you don't. But, you know, they were talking one day, and Ole Anderson, who was a brother of Arne, and the fake cousin of Rick, not really cousins, but they pretended like it, said there had been this much destruction since the four horsemen came. Well, there's a couple of problems. That four horsemen actually come, yeah, they're coming. But our culture's fascinated with it. Um, Y'all know Charles Manson? Know that name? You know, he identified the four horsemen. Did you know that? He identified. He said they were George, Paul, Ringo, and John. The Beatles were the four horsemen. Now, they had a lot of influence. Some of, they may have had a lot of influence on some of y'all. But that's not the four horsemen, right? Billy Graham said this in a book called Approaching Hoofbeats, The Four Horsemen. The shadows of all four horsemen can already be seen galloping throughout the world at this moment. Been a long time. 1983. Right? Here's the thing what he means by that. He doesn't mean that that he doesn't mean that they're coming tomorrow. What he means is what they represent is already here and it's intensifying. And there will come a day when it will be let loose. And so as we look through this, we're going to talk about those kind of things. Revelation chapter 6. Let's read it together. Alright? If you've got your Bibles, uh, we're going to be reading just verse 1 through 8. If you don't, you can just listen. Chapter 6 verse 1 says, Then I saw the Lamb open one of the seven seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice, remember, the Lamb is Jesus, He's opening a seal. Okay, So all He's doing is opening a seal, and as He does, one of the four living creatures gets up and says, Come! And I looked, and there was a white horse. And the horseman on it had a bow, a crown was given to him, and he went out to victor, as a victor to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come! Then another horse went out, a fiery red one, and its horseman was empowered to take peace from the earth so that people would slaughter one another and a large sword was given to him. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come! And I looked and there was a black horse. The horseman on it had a set of scales in his hand. And then I heard something like a voice among the four living creatures say, A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. But do not harm the olive oil and the wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and there was a pale green horse. Let me just stop there for a minute, because that's a difficult word to translate. It was the color of rotting meat. Since you've already eaten, I'll tell you this. It was the color of vomit. All right? Pale green sounds like, oh, you mean like we can put on the wall and it sounds good? No. Okay? It means... Yeah, that's what my, mine says ashen. And when I read it, I thought about, you know, the ashen color. Like, my dad had that when he was done. Yeah. Ashen, that grayish, grayish. Yeah. It's that, it's that, you know, people tell me, like, it, it is some of that. I mean, people will say about somebody that's sick, well, you look green, or you, you look ashen, or you look that just... Um, you look like death. Okay? So that's what this horse looks like as it's coming. The horseman on it was named Death. And Hades was following after him. I didn't mention at the beginning. That's the beginning of a pretty famous movie, movie Tombstone. 
talks about Western, modern Western, about he was riding a horse and was named Death and Hades was coming after him. Authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill by the sword, by famine, by plague, and by wild animals of the earth. Now here's what I think is interesting to think about. When you've got Revelation chapter 4 and 5, what happens in chapters 4 and 5? Chapter 4, there's worship of the one on the throne, right? What happens in chapter 5? Those of you who were here last week or Sunday, what happens at the beginning of chapter 5? They, they start looking for somebody to do what? Open the seal. Why do they want somebody to open the seal? Because that's what institutes God's plan moving forward, right? So they're looking for somebody worthy to institute God's plan moving forward. And they find it in the one who looks like a lamb that has been slaughtered and he seizes control of the scroll and he is about to bring to an end all that God has planned, all that God has done. Now, here's the thing you need to think about. When you think of Jesus seizing control of history, what do you think ought to happen? Because the way you answer that question may give insight into what you think about God. And it may show whether your concerns are the same concerns of God. I mean, when you think of Jesus taking over, do you think mainly about what you would get in that scenario? Green grass and blue skies and no death and everything good? Are you concerned with God's name being vindicated and the eternal glory of God being declared? If your concerns are from the Bible, Revelation 6 will not surprise you. If your concerns are for the glory of God and the vindication of His name, Revelation 6 will seem exactly what ought to happen. But if your concerns are, when do I get to have my heaven? Revelation 6 is going to seem odd and out of place. And not like God. Because Revelation 6, what we see is as soon as Jesus takes the scroll and begins to pull in the reins to bring history to a close, we don't see love and joy at the beginning, do we? We see judgment and wrath. It's almost as if God has always been involved in the affairs of men. But it's almost as if at this moment He's taking the reins and He's tightening them. How many of you have ever ridden a horse? I've ridden a couple of times, not much. Well, here's what I do know about when I rode the horse. The guy who was instructing me would tell me, if he gets to going too fast or you need to stop, you tighten the reins. Pull back, right? If you you enjoy the way He's going, you kind of let it flow free. You let it be... Here it's like God is kind of... There are times when God's kind of let the reins kind of flow, but when Revelation hits, He is... He's taking full control. And when He does, what we see is the wrath and the judgment of God pouring out. If you love God's glory, then chapter 6 is going to seem normal. You will be offended when people take the good gifts He's given them and He uses them against Him. You'll be offended when people refuse to honor God and give thanks. You will be offended when justice is not done. So it won't surprise you that when He takes the reins in chapter 5, that in chapter 6, the wrath of God begins to fall. God has been allowing crimes and injustices and blasphemies and abominations for so long. If you don't believe that, just turn on TV for a little while. 
flick around the channels, maybe does. My grandmother used to call them some of those foreign channels you don't ever watch. <laughs> and just watch and see how people treat the name of God. Find a candidate that finally speaks about, out about his Christian faith in real terms, not sugary sweet, I believe in God and believe the, in the people that believe in God, but really get serious about it and see how he gets treated. Revelation 6 promises that one day wrath will begin to fall, the debt will come due, justice will be done, the wicked will give an account, the righteous will be avenged, and God will be glorified in His justice. Now just to make that point, John here in the vision that he sees and what God gives him, gives him visions from the Old Testament. Zechariah chapter 1, chapter 6, Ezekiel 14, and even Leviticus 26 are behind this. Even in the New Testament, you have Jesus talking about it in Matthew 24 and Mark 13 and Luke 21. And there is remarkable parallelism or similarities between what Jesus says and what happens here. Matthew, when he writes what Jesus says, says what he describes here are the beginning of the sorrows. So what are we to be aware of? Four things. Four horses, right? The first one is we must be aware of the coming deception. Beware of the coming deception. The Lamb begins to open the seals and shows that He's in charge. First of all, He's able to open the seals. But also, you notice, His opening a seal causes one of the living creatures to call forth the horse, right? Now let me ask you a question. So who's in charge of these horses? Who's in charge of these horses? The living creatures are given the commands, and who's over the living creatures? God. So who's sending forth these creatures? God is, right? I mean, there's no other way to read this passage and think other than God is the one. Jesus opens the seal. Somebody, one of the living creatures, says, Come. The horse comes up, and then the horse is sent out. Now, let me just say real quickly. We're going to talk about this a little more at the end. We can understand that what they're bringing is death and destruction and bad things. And they may not be angels that are directly worshiping God. But no matter who they are, they are under God's control. And so as he says, come, the horse is coming. And then he says, go, and he sends them out. Now, I believe that part of this is the judgment of God. And if we have to understand... God is God and we are not. Right? And if He decides that the best way to deal with people who are not giving Him praise and honor and glory, it's not like He hasn't extended mercy infinitely more than is required of Him. And so it's not our place to judge or to question, well, how could God do that? He's God. And whatever has happened, the end of time is here. And he says, it's time. And he gets his son who opens the first seal. Now, I believe that these seals are simultaneous. I also believe that they are present in some way here today and that they will be intensified as we get closer to the end. So it's not like they're up in heaven right now and Jesus has kind of got his hand on one seal waiting. When I was in Fort Worth, Texas, I told... So we're in the office talking a little bit today. When I was in Fort Worth in school, I'd drive around. That was 98, 99, 2000. There was a guy on the radio that would tell you exactly which bowl we were in. 
and when we would be going to the next bowl. And would tell you when this seal happened and that seal happened. I, I don't think that we have any idea of the timetable. God does. Jesus is putting it into practice. Now people say, well Jesus doesn't even know. No, Jesus said He didn't know while He was here. Right? I think He and His dad have had a little conversation about it since. Alright? So it's not like Jesus up there, like my kids in the back of the car, are we there yet, Daddy? Is it time? And so you've got this moment, He breaks the first seal, and out comes a white horse. So who's riding the white horse? I think it's Satan. You think it's Satan? It's not Christ. Antichrist. Antichrist. Why do you say it's not Christ? Because he's got a bow. It's too early. Steve, you think it's too early. Well, in Revelation 21, who rides the white horse? If it's all the way to 21, then it's Jesus. It's Jesus. <laughs> Once we get to 21, it's Jesus. But this certainly we're not. There are, lot, there are some scholars that believe it's Jesus. This is Jesus. I'm not one of them. I'm not one of the scholars, but I'm not one of them. I'm not one believes that this is him either. So it's not me either. He's got a bow. He's got a bow. He's got a bow, and I think what's the crown. So why is it... Why, let me ask you this. If you're watching a Western, I know this is kind of... Uh, uh, <laughs> no, no, I know. Yeah, I know this is kind of anachronistic that they didn't have westerns back in Jesus' time. But if you're watching a western and somebody rides up on a white horse, is he good or bad? He's a good guy, right? Throughout history, the good guys are the the ones that are wearing that are wearing the white hat or on the white or wearing the white sash, right? So how is this guy who's come to conquer? Why is he on a white horse? He's deceiving people through religion. You ever know somebody that weren't exactly who they said they were? A few people. A few people. <laughs> you ever voted for somebody and then you go, whoa, what was that? Huh? Somebody asked that at 4 o'clock, they said, every year that happens. <laughs> You know, you ever had, you know, remember, the people still do this, but, you know, a few years ago, it was big. Uh, uh, don't blame me. I voted for yeah. whoever. Yeah. That's good. Or I voted for whoever, excited about it. There have been times when I voted for somebody, and I thought, I ain't putting no bumper yeah. sticker on my car. <laughs> I voted for them. Me too. Um, I mean, even a guy, um, I, I saw some things on, on the news this week about John Edwards. Okay? Yeah, you know John Edwards, right? The, Democratic primary guy last time. Uh, he was a guy that even as a Republican, you thought, if you were a big-time Republican, you thought, I kind of like him. He's all right. You know, he seems like a good guy. The whole time, having an affair with a woman that's videotaping his campaign. With a, a, a wife that's dying or in serious problems with cancer. Selling her story. And it comes out of it, you're like, he is not who I thought he was. Whether you're going to vote for him or not, just as a man. Well, no, because he was campaigning on the family. Right. Yeah. So, to think people can't be deceived is naive. And what I believe this white horse is, is the spirit of deception that will come into the world. And I think that we know that as this is happening, people are going to come and they're going to tell us they're the right way and they're going to tell us they're the one. There will eventually come one who is really saying that. This Antichrist, the embodiment of the Antichrist. Now, you know Scripture teaches there will be lots of Antichrist. People that are opposed to Christ. People who don't teach what He teaches. 
Now the bow, uh, y'all mentioned the bow, he's carrying the bow. In ancient times, the bow was a symbol of war. Uh, in the Old Testament, when God is talking about bringing peace, He says uh, in two places prominently, first of all, in Hosea 1.5 and in Jeremiah 51.56, that He will break their bows. In other words, they won't need them anymore. Okay? Be like today, I'm going to tear up their guns or disarm their missiles. Okay? So that was that. The crown that was given was a victor's crown, and He didn't earn it. It was given to Him. And He goes out... Surely or certainly to conquer, which was kind of a Semitic idiom, something that they used a lot, which meant he's going out to get them. He's going to, he's going to go wear them out. All right? Now, if I say that he's going to go wear them out, you know what I mean. And this means this guy's coming, he's going to conquer. Now, here's where I stand on it. And this comes from a writer by the name of G.K. Beale, and I like the way he puts it. He says, The rider of the white horse is whatever else a satanic force that is attempting to defeat and oppress believers spiritually through deception, persecution, or both. It could be that he is the Antichrist, or that he is a government persecuting Christians, or that he is the devil's servants in general. Now, here's where we need to realize, those kind of people are in the world right now. There are people being persecuted, we're going to talk about this a little more next week, people being persecuted as we speak in major ways. More people lost their lives in the 20th century for the cause of Christ than the other 19 put together. It's happening all over the world. So the writer in in chapter 6 is not Jesus. There are other purposes. There are other crowns. There are other weapons. And the time is different. The idea here is that he's unleashing this one who will go and deceive people and further let them dive into the spiritual darkness in which they already find themselves. So you've got to be aware of the deception that will be there. As an application, we always need to realize that there's a constant battle between truth and fiction, between real and unreal, between what is right and not right. And we have to be praying, seeking God's Word to be able to tell the difference. Second thing is we need to be aware of the coming destruction. Second horse, what color is it? Red. Red. What does red symbolize? Blood. You say just the word, just red. What is it? Fire. Anger. War. And four o'clock at the same time, somebody said hate and Alabama together. I said, all right, whatever. You know, you know, you think about a bullfighter. What does it use to get the bull angry? Red cape, all right? Well, they didn't have bullfighting back then, but red kind of symbolized that, that fire. Red's always been one of those colors of passion, of, of fury, of war. And following on the heels of this one that is coming to conquer through deception comes this destruction of what we think of as war. Now, here's the interesting thing. What does it say that the rider actually does? He does what? He removes peace. Then... Does he kill anybody? What happens? They kill each other. So what he does is, we have this sense, um, in, in theological terms, we call, uh, we call it common grace. What common grace is, is this understanding that when Jesus died on the cross, that while he had specific grace that is paying for the atonement for us, that when we accept Him, we receive the grace to cover our sins, that His dying on the cross also kind of held evil back 
a little bit. Worldwide. And the picture you get here is almost like God saying, all right, I'm going to take my presence out for a little while. Now, even with that little bit of God's presence still here, it's crazy, right? Name me somewhere that's got war going on right now. Huh? Afghanistan, Iraq, Iran, Somalia, Africa, all over the all over the continent. There's fighting in Indonesia, Malaysia, Mexico, Mexico, some skirmishes. Yeah, there's there's also fighting on Broadway. I mean, like downtown Nashville, right? Every day, you wake up in the morning. We talked about this last week. Some, somebody said something happened. People got mad at each other. There was a big fight at school last week, right? And it's just you see that people are already angry with each other, and it, see people people say things like it seems like people are just angrier than they used to be. Well, they are, and I think it's an intensification of us living away from the Lord. General Omar Bradley said in an Armistice Day speech in 1948, We have grasped the mystery of the atom and rejected the Sermon on the Mount. The world has achieved brilliance without conscience. Ours is a world of nuclear giants and ethical infants. It's a great line. During World War II, Albert Einstein had a friend of his from Germany that came over, a photographer he got to know, and he brought him up to the United States, and he took pictures of Einstein a lot. And one day he looked into the camera and started talking, and he just began to talk about the despair Einstein did of the fact that E equals MC squared, and his theories of relativity, and a letter he sent to President Roosevelt, and his scientific research had all been used to create a weapon that killed thousands. As he was talking about it, he kind of grew silent and his eyes looked at immense sadness and the photographer just looked at him and said, so you don't believe there will ever be peace? And the guy looked at him and says, as long as there is man, there will be war. We're not very good to each other. That's the history. And what this second one is, is it's like God says, I'm going to remove whatever common grace was there and y'all have at it. Here's the third one. You've got to beware of the coming deception, destruction, and what comes with conquering war. Famine. Open the third seal and famine breaks out. Now how do we know it's famine? It really means more than just food. Uh, Deborah can tell you this this afternoon in the office. I wanted a better word than famine. Because I, I, it, it means more than food. Because when I say famine, you think... Starving kids can't eat, which is true. But it's more than that. And it's, it's, I, I didn't want to use the Great Depression because some of you would say, great, we're already in the end times, right? We're there. But it may be. I'm not saying we're not. I'm just saying that that's not necessarily what it means. The picture you get here is he's coming with the scales. Now, the scales would be like the cash registers of our society. Right? I mean, he's coming holding them. You weighed out what you got and then you, you paid. What they're paying is a denarius. I mean, anybody know what a denarius? How much that is? No, it's not a penny. It's a day's wage. It's a full day's wage. Okay. For a loaf of bread. It's based. Well, it's not even a loaf of bread. It's a day's wage for enough grain 
enough wheat to keep one person in a day. And enough barley for three. But barley was less nutritious and not as good. So imagine, you know, what, what is bread today? Let's say a loaf of bread. Let's just go with that. A loaf of bread's $2, $2.50, somewhere around there. It depends on where you get it. Do you like the high dollar wheat stuff? Or if you like wheat bread, let's go with $2, okay? What if you went into the store tomorrow and a loaf of bread was $30 to $35? You wouldn't need bread. <laughs> well, I think if that's if that's what bread's costing, what's everything else costing? The prices here are ten to sixteen times the normal. And the point is that famine has so ravaged the land that food has gone through the roof. Now, we're in some difficult times, but we're not paying thirty dollars for a loaf of bread. You remember when the Soviet Union fell and Russia was in that desperate state and people would go over and find some rich Russians and they'd sell their $20 blue jeans for $400 because the market just needed bread went sky high. Okay, What's happening here is they say that this is all coming and part of it will be this great famine that will be almost unbearable. Um, now, just to let you know, the shadow of famine is present here today in the world. I mean, people are starving all over the place. They just are. Um, over ten years ago, the Southern Baptists got some leaders together in Ridgecrest to talk about the world hunger problem. And a guy there told them, they'd been 25 years since Roe v. Wade had been overturned. And he said, just to give you an idea of the problem of hunger, because I'm not minimizing the problem of abortion, but the abortions that have been done in the 25 years since Roe v. Wade happened will be matched by the number of people that die in the next 25 months from hunger. People are starving worldwide. Globally, 15 to 18 million people will die of hunger or hunger-related yet preventable and treatable diseases each year. With 500,000 to a million of them every year literally starving to death. More than 75% of the world's most impoverished adults and children live among people groups still unreached by the gospel. One IMB missionary said, Our Lord Jesus was always involved in ministry evangelism. If we're to obey the world of God, we dare not ignore the human need. And so we have to be aware that this is already happening in some ways, but it's going to intensify. Okay? Here's the last one. We've got deception, we've got destruction, we've got famine, and what follows all that? Yeah, yeah. Pale horse. Putrid looking. Ashen looking. Sick looking. Deathly looking. Comes. Now I want you to notice a couple of things. We're going to be done. Because I'm keeping you too... That's what happens when I get here late, right? I keep you too long. One of the things you need to see is that Jesus, the angel, the living creature, limits how much destruction and death they can bring. Right? I'm only going to give you access to a fourth. Now, later it will be a third, and then it will be a half. But at this point, there's a limit to it. Now, let me just give you an idea. You know, we just reached 7 billion people here in last year, 2011, worldwide. So just for a moment, think about this staggering reality. If a fourth of the earth were to die, you're looking at 1.75 billion 
debts. And Jesus says this. He talks about this kind of stuff happening. Deception, destruction, famine, and death. He says, all of this is going to come. In Matthew 24, 4-9, he's talking about it. He talks about what we see in Revelation 6. He talks about false Christ and wars and famines and lawlessness and lovelessness and death. And we realize Jesus is in control of history. And here's why it's relevant to us today. It's because in the history of humanity, we've seen these things happen. And we know that they're going to continue to happen until the day when they happen for the final time in a highly intensified way. They're the beginning of the judgments of God upon the people who have turned their backs on them. Revelation 6 claims that Jesus is in absolute control. The four living creatures summon the four horsemen. God brings these things on humanity, but forces of wickedness are responsible for the evil they do. And here's what I think is happening. God is basically saying, you know what? You have decided you want to live without me. You you have decided that you want to go against me. Well, guess what? I'm going to give you what you want. And it will literally be hell on earth for a period of time. What we have to realize as believers is that is exactly what God deserves is to vindicate His name. He is the only one worthy of worship and praise and honor and glory and strength. And our world and even us at times give it to everything else but Him. And if He let us loose on our own ability, we would mess it up so bad. What would happen is that we would run to understand that He's the only one that has any hope for us. God lets... uh, I like how somebody wrote this. He says, God wants people to see what happens when humans reject the rightful King, the Lord's Messiah, Jesus, and replace Him with some chump who looks good and speaks well. So God lets these fools have their day in the sun and He lets the mayhem and ruin that results from their pride and folly defile His world. God lets all this happen so that His wisdom, His power, His righteousness will be seen clearly. God wants people to know that only He can bring justice, peace, security, and happiness. All the pain and death and horror that makes up world history is a history of God's judgment being visited. It's not visited because people do not honor, or it is visited because people do not honor him. They refuse to honor him. Jesus said that these things must take place, but the end is not yet. And then he says this in Matthew 24, that they are the beginning of the birth pains. Now I have not experienced birth pains in my life. But I have observed people, or in particular one person in the midst of birth pains, and this is what I've gathered. It hurts. And oftentimes, from what I can tell, and from what my hands can tell from being squeezed, the most painful moments are right before the birth. These judgments are the birth pains. It means that they are more than angry retribution. It means that they are God preparing for a new heaven and a new earth. They are part of the necessary process that will bring forth new life. Before Jesus can take His people to the new and better Eden, the new earth, the new heavens, He has to bring judgment to all those despising God's glory, rid them from this place, get them out so that He is the only one that is to be worshipped. And as that moment, as that is happening, new life will be ushered in in a glorious and brilliant way.
And as Jesus begins to open the scroll, seal by seal, he sets in motion God preparing the world for its conclusion and rebirth. Imagine today that it's September 10th, 2011. We know what's coming. And we know what the end result will be for those who are not believers in Christ. So who in your life do you need to tell that the disaster is on its way and they need to get right? Next week we're going to continue. We're going to talk about saints under a table singing. We're going to talk about God beginning to provide some protection. But don't skip over, because it's painful, the judgment that's coming.